Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. It's always a bummer when there's a mention of wailing and grinding of teeth and I don't have Deacon Rich here to make fun of. I have to wait for next time. So this past Friday, this past Friday marked the 106th anniversary of the miracle of the sun in Fatima, Portugal. It was the culmination of the Our Lady's apparitions. She wanted to give them a sign. She promised that she would give a sign that would be incontrovertible, a sign that verified these messages that she was giving those three shepherd children, Lucia, Francesco, and Jacinta, right? She gave them this sign that 70,000 people witnessed. 70,000 people gathered in this muddy, soaked field, and they witnessed the sun dancing essentially through the sky, spinning, twirling, all of a sudden growing so massive that people thought the earth was going to be engulfed by the sun. And when they looked back up, the sun was in its normal place and the ground was bone dry, and 70,000 people witnessed this. 70,000 people. I've been thinking a lot about Our Lady of Fatima and the words of Our Lady of Fatima uh, a lot recently. In particular, something that um, now retired Cardinal Carlo Caffara, he revealed in a 2008 interview in regards to this. But before I get that, just a little context about Cardinal Caffara. So Pope St. John Paul II, I'll get to Caffara in a moment, but let's start with John Paul II. John Paul II was, I think, the most powerful force in the 20th century for combating the kingdom of darkness, right? So he was raised to the papacy in 1978, the second conclave of 1978, John Paul I, he's pope for 30 days, and then he's like, I'm out of here, right? And then they elect Carol Wojtyla, the first non-Italian pope in 400 years. He takes the name John Paul II. So anyway, John Paul II was, like I said, I think the greatest enemy to the kingdom of darkness in the 20th century, in particular his mission to teach the world, the truth about the human person, to teach the world the truth about the human person in the midst of a century that seemed hell-bent on obliterating the dignity and attacking and undermining the dignity of the human person. He taught the world the beauty of marriage and family and sexuality and the goodness of our being made male and female from the beginning and what that means and signifies. That God created these realities to be the most eloquent signs planted in creation that we're going to point to and reveal the greatest mysteries of the universe, the mysteries of salvation and redemption and why we're here and who we are and what we're destined for. Right? All of that is built into our made male and female from the beginning. And John Paul II saw part of his task as Pope to give a, a new vision for humanity and to understand what Pope Paul VI wrote in his encyclical Humanae Vitae, right? July 1968, Paul VI releases Humanae Vitae, upholding the church's traditional teaching against the usage of all forms of contraception. And the world hated this encyclical. The world still hates this encyclical. Many inside the church still hate this encyclical. But John Paul II provided what he calls a new anthropology, a total vision of man, understanding who, who the human person is to understand this teaching, right? So to help him in this mission, he established a new institute, the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family. 
to get his teaching out into the culture and out into the world. And the person he pegged to be the first president of this institute was this Cardinal Kafara. As it was starting, he was faced with so many obstacles, so much resistance. People were throwing so many roadblocks in his way. He was feeling extremely discouraged. So he revealed in a 2008 interview that he wrote a letter to Sister Lucia of Fatima, right? Sister Lucia of, you know, Our Lady of Fatima, right? That's Sister Lucia, who was still alive at the time. He said this, I wrote to her and I didn't expect an answer, seeing that I had only asked for her prayers. But I received a very long letter with her signature, now in the Institute's archives. In it we find written, quote, The final battle between the Lord and the reign of Satan will be about marriage and the family. Don't be afraid, she's added, because anyone who works for the sanctity of marriage and the family will always be fought and opposed in every way, because this is the decisive issue. I find her words just so, I mean, just startling, prophetic, amazing in so many ways. I love that she says, don't be afraid, and then she doesn't explain why you shouldn't be afraid. She says, don't be afraid, you're just going to be fought by everyone and opposed by everyone. So just, yeah, what do you you expect, right? Don't be afraid. Because she says, this is the decisive issue. Why is this the decisive issue? Because the enemy's war against marriage, it's the enemy's war. It's not the left's war, it's not any particular political party's war, it's the enemy's war. It's the enemy's war against marriage and sexuality, his war against the body, his war against our embodiment. It's a war over the signs. It's a war over the words. It's a war for the meaning of these words, the meaning of these concepts. Marriage, mother, father, man, woman, sexuality, all of these words, because these words, these realities are the earthly signs that point to the heaven realities, right? If you want to understand Christianity, you have to understand these words. He's going after the words, right? In order to cause the maximal amount of confusion and chaos and pain in the human family. It's his, it's his war against God, and he's taking it out on us. Right? John Paul II, he said that the mystery of redemption clothes itself, he says, in the primordial sacrament I know, that's a lot for 8 o'clock in the morning. Let me explain what that means, right? The primordial sacrament, the first sacrament. What's the first sacrament? Adam and Eve, marriage in the Garden of Eden. Matrimony is the first sacrament, the first sign. And John Paul II says that that the mystery of redemption, meaning being saved, being brought into right relationship with God, entering the kingdom, those realities, he says, It's not a juridical matter. It's not merely a matter of a judge pardoning a guilty person. It's not a king who simply gives a, you know, a a grant to someone who's begging him. It's, It's a matter of spousal nuptial reality. He's saying being saved, being brought into right relationship with God is a matter of being embraced by a bridegroom. Being saved means opening yourself to receive the love of the bridegroom, being embraced by the bridegroom who offers himself to us, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist, in the mystery of his flesh, 
This is what he's saying. And this parable that we have for today, I think Jesus is giving us the clearest articulation of his own self-understanding of who he is and what his mission is. And again, this is why it all matters, right? So Jesus, up to this point in Matthew's gospel, has been giving parable after parable, trying to articulate what the kingdom is like. And he finally, it's like he gets, I don't want to say he gets exasperated, but he's like, okay, right? The kingdom is like a king who throws a wedding feast for his son. Are you understanding me, right? And everyone's invited. He's like winking really hard at everybody, like, are you picking up what I'm putting down? This is what it's like. And everyone's invited, he says. Yes, the Lord is like a shepherd, as we just sang in that psalm. He's the light of the world. Yes, he's the sower who scatters seeds upon creation. But in his heart, who he is, he is the son of the king. He is the bridegroom Messiah who has come to woo and wed his bride back to divinity. That's what the whole story is. That's what it is. This is why God made the universe, to hold a marriage feast for his son, to invite us into the joy of his life. This is what Isaiah's vision is about in that first reading, this, this mountain where this messianic banquet is happening. It's the banquet, it's a wedding banquet that's being described. It's the messianic bridal sacrificial wedding banquet. It's the wedding supper for the whole world. And the mission of the son, in the final analysis, it is spousal. It's a spousal reality. Like at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, the stunning proposal at the heart of the Christian claim is that there is a stunning proposal at the heart of the Christian claim. That there is a bridegroom who made the stars, who looks at you and says, Will you spend eternity with me? And the greatest task of our lives is simply to say yes. Like, we have to do what she did, right? If Mary is the archetype of humanity, if she is who we are called to be, right? Our life, our sweetness, our hope. If we look to her to find out who we are, we have to do what she did, which is to open everything, to let him into everything, to let God take his rightful place in our humanity, that's what we are called to be. Like the secret that unlocks the gospel, the secret that unlocks this parable is that we are the bride. Like we are the guests and we are the bride who have been invited to a great wedding feast. Here's the thing though, if you live in a world where the words groom and bride no longer mean anything, if you live in a world where marriage and sexuality and male and female no longer mean anything but are just simply social constructs, you will never really be able to understand what's being offered from heaven. That's why he's going after the words. That's why he's going after the words. Life is finally about letting the bridegroom in. It's about a yes to God's marriage proposal. And the stunning thing is that many have said no. Back to this image of, of the wedding, right? So Christ is the bridegroom and every baptized person is the bride. Right, like what do, what do the newly baptized wear? White baptismal garments. What do brides wear when they walk down the aisle? White gowns. What do the, the, the multitudes 
standing around the throne in the book of Revelation, right? The bride of Christ, what are they wearing in the apocalypse of John? They are wearing white garments. How are they made white? He says, washed in the blood of the Lamb. They have been saturated in the blood of the Lamb. What's the blood of the Lamb? It's the love that has poured out of his heart. They have washed themselves, received deeply the love that pours out of the heart of Jesus. And every single Mass, it is a wedding where the bride walks down the aisle to meet the bridegroom hidden in the Eucharist. That's what, this, is, this is what Christianity is. This is what the Mass is. And again, like I was saying, the baffling enigma of all of this is that we can say, and many do say, no to this. Like, you've, you've RSVP'd to the wedding. You are here. You showed up on a Sunday morning. I'm very proud of you. Right? You made it. And those of you with little kids, thank you so much for being here. Because I know, like, I, I see what's going on out there. Right? Like, I see. Right? Y'all here, I get to see it. Thank you for bringing your kids. Jesus says, let the little ones come to me. Right? There are many people who stay away. Polls tell us, right, that the numbers are right. Somewhere in the ballpark of 70% of self-identified Catholics don't come to Sunday Mass at all. 70%. That's a dismal failure, right? What's going on there? Like, thanks God for the invitation, but we regretfully decline because, you know, we've got, uh, we've got a soccer tournament this weekend. You know, it's pretty far away. Or we stayed up, we were up late last night. You know how it is, Lord, you know. Remember Cana? You remember all that wine, right? Come on, Lord. Right? Or gosh, we got CYO, or gosh, you know, it just, it's the reality is it's boring and we just don't want to go. And I don't think it's Donut Sunday, but it is Donut Sunday. <laughs> like people stay away. Our parishioners stay away from Mass for a million reasons, but ultimately it's because they don't perceive the value of what's happening here. And that's not entirely their fault. Like we in the church, we've done, we've, we've done this in many ways to ourselves building churches that don't communicate the royal transcendence of the wedding feast, celebrating liturgies in a way that are kind of sloppy and irreverent, making it look like this is just a very pedestrian, normal thing, draining the mass of all signs and symbols of majesty. Why would I get up on a Sunday morning for something that I can just, you know, get at a Taylor Swift concert, a sense of community and transcendence. What's the point? I'm often struck on Sunday mornings when I look out. I mean, there's, there's a good number of people here for an 8 o'clock Mass, but look how many people are not in the pews. We still have a lot of empty pews. Right? What does the Father say in this parable? I want my hall filled and we tell ourselves in the church, it's not about the numbers. Really? Like, I, I don't know. I think we have a God who wants everybody. One lost sheep is one too many lost. He wants his hall filled. I'm often struck on Sunday mornings when I think about how on, you know, just the other side of the planet, we have brothers and sisters in the church and other rites, the Melkites, the Maronites, the Coptics, right? Brothers and sisters who are literally risking their lives to be in the very place where you are. Now, I get I'm preaching to the choir. You're here. I'm not yelling at you. I'm just saying. Like, we have people who evaluate the value of Mass and say a soccer tournament is more important. And we've got people the same morning on the other side of the planet who are saying, I'm ready to die for this. 
I'm ready for my entire family to die for this. We here in the comfortable West. This was me and this was my family for a long time. Look, here's some good news I just want to share. We've got, as you've heard me say before, we've got something in the ballpark of 26 adults entering our Becoming Catholic series this year. More, I think, are trickling in. If you know more, we'll take more. We'll have a 10-hour Easter vigil. I don't care. And you know that's true. How is that happening? In large part, it's because they've encountered someone. The people who have come to us this year, they all have a very similar story. I met someone from your parish who was on fire, who witnessed to the life-transforming effect of friendship with Jesus, and it stirred a hunger in me that I just, I, I needed to have what they were eating. I needed to have what they had. This is how it happens, right? Saved souls save souls. As Father John Ricardo says, rescued people rescue people. Or those who've said yes to the invitation, they themselves become a living invitation. Right? You may have noticed, this is a practical point, you may have noticed in the last few weeks that we've made a few practical changes to the way we distribute communion at Mass. That we've reduced the numbers of extraordinary ministers. We used to have two, two, and two. Now we have one, two, and one. Why? To slow it down. I know you're already thinking, Father, you're already preaching way too long. (laughs) Why would we want to slow it down? Because one, efficiency is not a liturgical value. Efficiency is not a word that that lovers use. You don't think when you're having a romantic anniversary dinner, like how, how quick can we get through this? Love wants to linger, number one. Number two, we have, to, we have to do something to slow it down so that your hearts have time to actually hear him, to hear him speaking to you, the bridegroom who wants to whisper words to his bride. Like, what do you think he wants to say to you? He went through the bother first of making a whole universe and filling it with glories and beauties beyond imagining. Then he created earth and filled it with life teeming in majesty. And then he covenanted himself with a particular people and prepared them over thousands of years through prophets and covenants and ups and downs so that eventually he could become flesh and dwell among us so that he could send his spirit so that he could establish a church so that you could be sitting here right now with your mouth watering ready to receive him into your very body. Do you think he wants to say anything to you? I think so. And if we don't have the time to listen, nothing will practically change. This is not a drive-through. This is not a drive-through. This is where lovers meet. This is what this is. What is he saying to you in your depths? Hearing those words, that's going to be what changes your life. That's what's going to be what changes your marriage. That's what's going to be what changes your family, what changes our community, what changes our state, what changes our country, what changes our world. If people can finally start hearing Jesus, that's what will change everything. Those who have experienced intimacy with the bridegroom cannot help but invite others to the same wedding feast. He wants his hall filled And he wants to fill you first.